0: J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number 1 in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number Limited Edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.
1: Welcome to Three Identical Strangers, the science behind the story. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. In this podcast series, we'll explore the scientific and ethical dilemmas from the award-winning CNN film Three Identical Strangers. You can watch the film on CNN at the end of January. I know a bunch of you have already been captivated after watching it in theaters. Here's a quick reminder of the story the film follows, when three identical brothers separated at birth had a surprise reunion.
2: When people ask me what is the most remarkable story you ever encountered, I tell them it's the story of the triplets.
0: You guys have been on the front page of every newspaper in the
3: world. True. True. They were more like clones than they were like brothers. It was a miracle. There was nothing that could keep us apart. That's when things kind of got funky. Something was just not right. They separated these boys at birth. The parents had never been told that there were two other children. What was the purpose? Why? How could you not tell us?
1: It's one of my favorite films of the year. And I got to tell you, as a neurosurgeon, as a dad, watching this documentary provoked a ton of questions. The big questions. In today's episode, we'll delve into the mother of all genetic questions. What matters more? Nature or Nurture? And how do the two interact? We're not likely to solve this debate today, but joining me to explain some of the key concepts behind the debate is Ruth Tenen, product scientist at 23andMe. Thanks for joining us, Ruth. Thanks for having me. You know, it's been said, physicists often say that everything is relative, and geneticists often say everyone is a relative, which I (laughs) thought was really, really clever, but it does, it does raise this question, how connected are all of us at the genetic level? How connected are you and I, for example?
2: Yeah, so um, it's estimated that all humans are about 99.5% identical at the DNA level. So there's certainly more similarities than differences.
1: I, I think that's really important context, 99.5%. So when we're talking about identical twins, we're talking about 100%, so 0.5% more.
2: Yeah, exactly. So it's only that that remaining point five percent that we're thinking about in terms of differences between people,
1: and 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 the big question is within that point five percent, is there something more magical, something more mystical? Before we get into the science of this, um, what, what do you think? I mean, this is your life's work. How important is that point five percent?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think I think that genetics is certainly important. It, probably plays a role in almost all of our traits, from our, you know, personalities to which diseases we're susceptible to. Um, But we know that in very few cases is genetics the whole story. So our environment certainly plays an important role in almost everything as well.
1: well. Why do you think it's important to understand what is impacted by nature versus what is impacted by nurture?
2: I think, um, I think there's a couple of reasons. So one is if we can understand kind of the genetic underpinnings of certain diseases, we may be able to predict who's at increased risk or to design interventions and treatments um, to help those people. And on the flip side, if we can understand the environmental contributors, then we may be able to design interventions to kind of prevent um, those diseases in the same way. So I think understanding both sides of the equation can be really helpful.
1: I, I want to get a better understanding of how you believe these forces, nature and nurture, sort of really interact with each other. But maybe you could give us a little primer on what we're talking about here. Your DNA, your genes, your, and then your traits, the things that you express. How, how does this all play out?
2: Sure, absolutely. So a quick a quick genetics 101. Um, so DNA is a molecule that's found inside almost all of our cells. And... Um, it's packaged up into 23 pairs of chromosomes and along those chromosomes are segments of DNA called genes. And so if you think of your DNA, your genome, as a cookbook, then each gene is kind of like a recipe. Um, and many of those genes contain instructions for making proteins, and it's really proteins that do all the work inside our body. So carrying oxygen around in our blood and um, responding to bacterial invaders if we get an infection, forming the structure of our hair. Um, so that's kind of how DNA goes from you know, just a molecule inside of our, inside of our cells to um, something that actually influences who we are.
1: And this idea of epigenetics, which is a term that people who follow this at all have probably heard, how do epigenetics uh, fall into this?
2: Yeah, so epigenetics is kind of um, refers to changes in the expression of genes rather than in the gene sequence itself. Um, Epi kind of means on top of, so kind of things that layer on top of the DNA. And so we know that when we're exposed to different environments, different things in our environment, um, that usually doesn't actually change the sequence of our DNA, but it can change which genes are turned on and off. And one mark of those gene expression changes are like little chemical tags that can get added to the DNA. And so one way of kind of tracing um, changes in the environment that may have occurred would be to kind of look for those tags and those changes in gene expression.
1: When you think about the big question... Ruth, the nature versus nurture question, and and your background obviously is as a geneticist, can you contextualize how important you think each are?
2: Yeah, so I think um, it really depends on the trait that we're talking about. So you can kind of think about your traits um, along a spectrum, so things that are strongly influenced by genetics might be on one side, that's kind of the nature side. And then traits that are strongly influenced by environment would be on the other side, the nurture side. And there are certainly some traits that are driven kind of entirely by one or the other. So, um, your blood type, for example, is entirely due to your genetics. Um, there are certain diseases that are driven entirely by net- genetics, things like sickle cell anemia, cystic fibrosis. On the flip side, um, there are a handful of things that are mostly due to the environment. For the vast majority of traits, um, the genetic and environmental components are both important. So they'll find, fall somewhere in between the extremes of that spectrum. And that's everything from, you know, our risk to disease, for diseases like type 2 diabetes and cancer, um, whether we experience motion sickness, whether we're nearsighted, our personalities, our height, all sorts of things, kind of nature and nurture are both important for all of those, just to varying degrees.
1: It seems like physical traits would be much more nature when you start to get into behavioral traits, um, more nurture is would would that be a fair representation?
2: So I would say there are definitely a lot of physical traits that are strongly influenced by genetics. So height, for example, um, certainly has a strong genetic component, but it is influenced by environment as well. So it's known that if someone sure. is genetically predisposed to be tall but doesn't get enough healthy food to eat when they're younger, they might end up being shorter than they otherwise would be. Um, and certainly I think there are very few sort of personality or behavior traits that are really strongly driven by genetics. But scientists have done studies and found that genetics is a... Is, a considerable contributor to things like our personality traits um, and certain behaviors as well.
1: In the film, Three Identical Strangers, these are these are brothers who are separated at birth. They're reunited, um, you know, in their late teens, 19 and, and on. And it is really um, quite something to see the similarities, certainly in terms of physical traits, but I think more so in terms of their behaviors. Did that surprise you?
2: You know, it did surprise me a little bit, actually, to see that these triplets who had been separated for so many years actually were quite similar in terms of their behaviors. Certainly, there are things, you know, when you're with someone who very, looks very similar to you and you're kind of caught up in this is so exciting that I have a triplet, like you can imagine that those were the things that maybe would be portrayed in the news more than the differences. Um, but it really was surprising to me um, to see those, those similarities after so many years.
1: You know, tw- twins are, 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 I think, fascinating to, to everybody who, who sees them. And, you know, um, you, you want to interact, you want to understand what is similar, what is different. From a scientific perspective, why is studying twins particularly enlightening? Or, or is it enlightening? Does it shed light on things that you otherwise would not be able to answer?
2: Yeah, I think that's absolutely the case. The twins can be very useful to study. I mean, I think they're they're very helpful uh, to get insights into the relative contributions of genetics and environment for particular traits. Um, So the classical type of twin study uh, actually looks at identical twins and fraternal twins. So identical twins share just about 100% of their DNA, uh, whereas fraternal twins share about 50%, just like regular siblings. So scientists can look at how often identical twins share a particular trait and compare that to how often fraternal twins share that trait. Um, And if the variation in that trait is strongly influenced by genetic differences, then the identical twins will share the trait more often than fraternal twins because they share more DNA. Um, and there's actually um, a measurement that scientists sometimes use to, to get a handle on the, con- the contribution of genetics. It's called heritability. Mm-hmm. And one of the ways that you can derive heritability estimates is from twin studies.
1: The, the sort of uh, answer that comes back often is that nature and nurture roughly equal, sort of separated out the way that you did. It, it depends on what you're asking about specifically, but roughly equal. Is that, do you think, always going to be the answer or is the work that you're doing and others doing going to ultimately shed more light on this? Are we getting more detailed in terms of what we can say the impact is of nature versus nurture?
2: Yeah, so I think, I mean, we're constantly learning new things about the role of genetics in diseases and other traits, um, and we also are learning about the role of environment. There was a big study that was done a few years ago that was kind of a, a compilation of all the twin studies that had been done in the last 50 years, and they looked at something like 17,000 traits and more than 14 million pairs of twins. And on average, as you mentioned, nature and nurture kind of seem to be equally important. So the heritability was about 49%, which was an interesting point, right? It kind of reinforces that almost everything is influenced by genetics and environment, even though there's variability around that average. Um, I think, you know, our estimates of heritability depend a lot on the population that we're studying and the environment. So they are not static and they don't stay the same over time. So you can imagine as Scientists continue doing research that these estimates um, could change.
1: Do you think that there is um, a value for the average person to get their their genes sequenced? You know, to give DNA and get their their some data back about their own genetic code.
2: Um, I think there there is value in some cases. So certainly um, there are certain genes that can greatly increase, or certain genetic variants that can greatly increase your risk for developing disease. And in some cases, those uh, having that information can allow you to take preventive steps. So for example, if a woman has a variant in the BRCA1 gene, she is at greatly increased risk for breast and ovarian cancer, but there are certain steps she can take to reduce her risk. So in that case, knowing that information, if it's something you want to know, can be very empowering. Um, there are other cases where the science is really new, right? Scientists are always developing new methods of making predictions, and in that case, um, sometimes it's just fun to learn about. Kind of, your genetics predispose you to maybe getting bitten by mosquitoes more often than hmm. other people. Um, but in some cases, you want to you want to make sure that that's always grounded in science and that you're not um, kind of overinterpreting what the genetic result means because. Almost always, as we talked about, there's going to be an environmental component and genetics can just give you kind of a piece of the puzzle.
1: Yeah. And, I, and I imagine as we get more genetic information, the, the quality of what we can say about any, indiv- any individual's DNA will, will improve as well.
2: Absolutely. Yep. As studies become kind of bigger and bigger, one of, the, one of the important things in trying to gain these genetic insights is to have huge numbers of people to study because it allows you to kind of dissect these genetic differences. So as we get more people involved in research, we certainly can get um, more detailed insights.
1: Okay. Dr. Tenen, thank you so much for that. Thank you for that refresher on genetics as well. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Up next, we'll talk to a professor whose life work is studying twins separated at birth. She herself is a twin and has some remarkable new science to share
0: with us. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like.
3: So there have been arrests, suspensions, disciplinary hearings. They're shutting down graduation events.
0: At this moment, the part of the protests that are admirable are young people calling attention to atrocities. Michael Roth is the president of
1: Wesleyan University. I would like to make a space for them to do that, as long as that space doesn't prevent other people from pursuing their education.
3: Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app.
1: Welcome back. Now with me is Dr. Nancy Siegel. Dr. Siegel is a professor of psychology at California State University, Fullerton, and founder and director of the Twin Study Center. Thanks for joining me. Pleasure to be here, Sanjay. I should mention, Dr. Siegel, you yourself are a twin. Is that what originally drew you into this sort of work?
3: Yes, of course. I'm a fraternal twin. I have a sister who looks and acts nothing like me. And I remember as a small child, just thinking, how is it possible that two children raised at the same time by the same set of parents in the same community could end up being so different? And then when I got to college, I learned about genetics and twin research, and I just fell in love with it because it provided me with so many crystal clear answers as to how we developed as we did. So, yeah, being a twin has really driven this in my career. Absolutely.
1: You, you share as a fraternal twin 50% of your, your DNA, roughly. You're, as you mentioned, you're, you grew up in almost the same environment. I'm sure there were differences. So you say you got some answers to this question of, as to why you're so different. What are they? I'm curious for myself.
3: The answers are that people with different genes, even if they're in the same objectively similar environments, people with different genes create their own environments within that space. We tended to prefer different interests. We had different friends. We took advantage of different opportunities that our parents provided for us. And I think that is really what, what drove our differences. It was very easy to treat us differently because we were such different children. We just elicited different reactions from our parents. So I think that's really what happened. And when I was a child, I sort of intuited that there was something fundamentally different about us. There had to have been. And when I got to college, I realized that it was genes. Are you and your fraternal twin sister close? We're very close as sisters. I don't think that we demonstrate that very close connection that is more typical of identical twins, but I think we share a very close sibling bond.
1: You've you, you brought this up, and I've heard your lectures, and I've watched your TED Talk and your books, this distinction that you make between identical and fraternal twins. It almost sounds, you know, a, a little magical, the, the connection between identical twins. You, you feel that it is, it is different.
3: There is definitely a difference between identical and fraternal twins, and it always upsets me when people talk about twins in general, because identical twins share all their genes. Fraternal twins share half the genes on average by descent. And these two twins give us the most elegant and yet simple way of looking at nature-nurture questions. Mm. But there is a difference in their similarities, a difference in their relationship, a difference in their self-identity. Now, there is overlap. I do know identical twins who are not very close. And then no fraternal twins who are extremely close. Mm -hmm. Remember that fraternal twins vary on the spectrum of genetic relatedness, with some being close to genetically towards identical twins and some being further away. So you're going to see a lot of variation among fraternal twins. Anyway, this is why I think it's so important to pay attention to the different types. And when it comes to developmental questions... I must ask parents, you know, if the twins are identical, fraternal, how they've been diagnosed, because I don't just take parental reports. Hmm. I have to see the DNA for myself.
1: You can, that's a true scientist speaking for sure. You also heard uh, Dr. Ruth Tenen just now you know, reminding us, I guess, that all of us, you and I, you and everybody else that you walked past the street in New York today, about 99.5% related when it comes to purely DNA, when, it looks, when you look at our genetics. So we're talking about 0.5% here, Professor, which is which is the difference. Identical twins are completely related. Everyone
3: else, 99.5%. That's right. But small differences translate into huge differences when it comes to behavior, when it comes to appearance. And I think that it's this identity of identical twins that really draws us in. You know, many people want to know Why are twins so fascinating? Because wherever I go, Sanjay, and people find out what I do, they want to tell me a twin story, and they want to hear (laughs) about what I'm doing. And I think it's because we expect individual differences in appearance and behavior. And so when we encounter two people who look and act so much alike, it challenges our beliefs in the way that the world works, and it draws us in, it intrigues us, because it's not what we expect. It is the
1: big question, really. And I'm, I'm working up to it with you, because I want uh, to... That is the fundamental issue, is really it's about ourselves. Like, who are we really? What are we capable of? Is the die cast? How much free will? But before we get that, you you have focused a lot of your work on twins that were separated at birth. That's right. What what was it about this particular group of people that, that intrigued you? What
3: intrigued me so much about that is that you had an opportunity to see the expression of the same genes in totally different environments with no contact at all between the twins, who often didn't even know they had a twin. And some of the similarities between the twins did not surprise me, because I've been doing twin studies for a long time. When it came to other types of interests and when it came to small habits, such as scratching an ear with a paper clip or leaving one square of toast on the plate uneaten, these were the kinds of things that really intrigued me and made me realize that all of us have unusual, quirky little habits. And they're not just a matter of random chance, they're a function of who we are. And one of the big observations that people make about twins is how similar they are in terms of their posture, how they hold their hands, how they sit, how they cross their legs. And even in twins raised apart, what we did was on the first day of the assessment, we would have them stand without any instruction how to do that. And invariably, we saw the identical twins taking similar posture and the fraternal twins standing in totally different ways. You're saying it could be their, their body morphology,
1: their physical body that actually makes it more comfortable to cross your legs a certain way.
3: That's exactly right. Exactly right. And another thing that comes up a lot are things like, why do identical twins, whether raised apart or together, choose similar outfits? And a lot of times you think that's a matter of chance, but think about what goes into buying an outfit. The feel of the fabric, the cost of the material... Does the style look good on you? Does the fabric scratch you or itch you in some way? Colors, these are all things that at some level have a genetic influence.
1: If people have looked into this issue at all, they've likely read your book called Born Together, Reared Apart, the landmark Minnesota twin study. It's one of the most famous twin studies,
3: I think. Fair to characterize it that, that way. Why was it so significant? The Minnesota study of the twins raised apart was significant because it evolved in 1979. And that was a time in the history of psychology where people took very environmentally driven opinions of how we turned out. The Minnesota study was finding genetic findings. We were challenging the conventional wisdom. And it was a very controversial study, very provocative. I was lucky to be a postdoc right at the height of this. Hmm. And... Yet, it persuaded people over time. It's still not without its critics, I should say, but it persuaded people over time that genetics has a much more pervasive influence, meaning that it affects virtually everything that we measure. And what I always tell people, too, is that twins are living laboratories. Just by acting naturally, they just give us so many insights into human development that would not be available from any other source. It seems that it
1: was maybe provocative as well because the – you know, you're talking about a period of time when psychoanalytic research was quite common. Freudian sort of underpinnings to much research was was out there, Uh, maybe not pervasive, but a lot of people thought that way. The idea that nurture was going to be a more important component than nature – I think
3: maybe that's what they expected to find. I think so. Now, I think that the reason why we were so environmentally driven in the 70s and even sometimes into the early 80s is partly the legacy of the Nazi era where they tried to show the genetic superiority of one race over another and the really horrific twin studies done in the concentration camps. So people really swung over to the other side of the pendulum. Also, you had the civil rights movements and you had um, the women's movement and all those sorts of things, which I explain in Born Together, Reared Apart. So when we came up with this twin study that's now showing genetic findings, of course, it kind of shook the establishment. But there were still people within twin research and adoption studies, I should point out, who really believed that these findings, and certainly in my personal experience and in my scientific world, these things made a lot of sense. That's interesting. I, it, it's endlessly fascinating. I can see why you've
1: devoted your, your life to this work. In your book, you discuss the Jim Twins. Tell us about the Jim Twins.
3: The Jim Twins actually launched the Minnesota Study of Twins Raised Apart. The Jim Twins were 39 years old in 1979, and they met each other. They lived apart 30, 40 miles in the state of Ohio. and When they met, The newspaper coverage was enormous, and somebody left a newspaper article in Professor Bouchard's office. He was the director of the study, and he decided to bring them to the university, have them complete a very comprehensive assessment, and maybe find one or two other such pairs. But the Jim Twins were so strikingly similar in so many ways that other pairs were attracted to the study, and eventually, with 15 pairs, we found up to 137 The Jim twins had similarities ranging from their nail-biting habits to their mixed headache syndromes, which they developed at the same time in adolescence, Mm. to the fact that they both drove light blue Chevrolets and they vacationed on the same three-block street of beach in Florida. Both twins had married women named Betty, divorced them, and married women named Linda, and then one of them divorced Linda and married Sandy, and so you can imagine the other Linda was a little nervous at this point <laughs> because we know that divorce has a fairly substantial genetic component to it. We don't introduce know that the then. other one to any women named Sandy. That's right. That's exactly right. Uh, the Jim twins also spoke in a rather low and almost incomprehensible fashion. They both had worked part-time as sheriffs, and they both scattered love letters around the house for their wives. Uh, maybe the one who divorced didn't scatter quite as many love letters <laughs> as he
1: should have. When you look at these types of studies, and this this is a question I think uh, that is pervasive across science, how do you parse out what are, you know, I guess could be called coincidences, you know, um, findings that uh, that draw more similarity than uh, may may otherwise really exist. Maybe there's many identical twins out there reared apart who don't have any of these these sorts of similarities?
3: Well, the basic way to do that is to compare identical rear depart twins and fraternal rear depart twins, because, as we said earlier, one shares 100% of their genes and one only 50%, but then you can start to also look at unrelated people, and you can look at adopted individuals who live together and see how similar they are. So there's many, many lines of inquiry that we can bring to the same class of questions, and invariably, we're getting similar answers, which gives me a lot of confidence that genetics plays a big role. And something I would like to clarify is that when we talk about 50% this or 45% that, we're talking about a population. We're talking about individual differences from person to person. So it could be that we know that personality has about a 50% genetic effect, but it doesn't mean that if I took a single individual, their personality could be deconstructed into a genetic and environmental component. It doesn't mean that at all. Now, when we think about intelligence, we know that has about a 75% genetic influence, but it could be that an individual in that population had a terrible disease or an impoverished upbringing or fell on their head when they were an infant, which would interfere with the normal development of ability. And I think anybody who,
1: who thinks about this debate will say, of course, there's probably a component uh, of each. And, and within individuals, because of some life event, you know, nurture could outpace nature in that case. That's absolutely right. But for you, you say genetics overall plays a big role. You've said that a couple times. Can you give me some some idea of how big a
3: role do you think this plays? Well, I think it play. When I say a big role, what I mean is it affects virtually every behavior we've been able to measure. But having said that, it is trait specific. With some behaviors having a stronger genetic influence than others, height is one that has a particularly high genetic component. As does brain waves, but it drops down a bit for. General intelligence, which is about seventy five percent, personality by fifty percent, religiosity about fifty percent, and job satisfaction closer to thirty percent. So you do see this kind of hierarchy. But when we look at things overall, we tend to converge on about fifty percent.
1: When I was watching this film, and certainly when I've heard your your, your talks, I am not quite sure how to feel in the sense that how much of my life is preordained, right? I guess this gets at this issue of of free will. But if there's so much about my life that could have been predicted because of my genetics, the type of house, the type of car, the type of woman, whatever it
3: might be, I don't know, it feels a little unsettling to me. Should it? It shouldn't at all, because I don't think DNA is predictive. DNA is probabilistic. Genes work in probabilistic fashion. And we have free will. You know, our genes don't tell us what to do. If I know that genes influence divorce. I make the decision to divorce. My genes don't tell me to do that. I have decisions, and I can pick from a huge range of things. I'm a professor. I suppose I could have been a doctor. I could have been a schoolteacher. I could never have been a ditch digger. I could never have been a soccer player. I know some of my limitations, and I think that genetics gives us a more realistic way of making decisions, but it in no way deprives us of free will. Will this debate
1: ever end? Will there ever be an answer to the
3: nature-nurture debate? I think that there never will be an answer to the nature-nurture debate because this is a topic that is endlessly interesting to everybody. Everybody wants to know why they are the way they are and how they got that way. And I think this is something that is just so fascinating. We will never find a solution. And you know what? In some ways, I hope we don't.
1: I think that's a good place to end it. Why we are the way we are and how we got that way. That sounds, like, that sounds like the title of your next book, maybe. Could be. <laughs> Professor Siegel, thank you so much. Really my appreciate pl- it. My pleasure. And thanks so much for listening to our first episode. On the next episode, join us on a journey through infamous experiments that shaped the field of medical ethics.
0: All doctors, whether German or from anywhere else, sign up to do no harm. That's in the Hippocratic Oath. And yet here were doctors in the service of the state actively harming their patients, their subjects, uh, in a willful and horrible manner. And don't forget to watch
1: Three Identical Strangers on CNN, January 27th.